You're listening to Consolidate That. Ukraine is my motherland. It is now under a savage attack by Russia. Ukraine is shielding Europe and the rest of the civilized world from Putin's barbaric aggression. Ukrainians are brave and effectively fighting back. Let's help. Make a donation to Armed Forces of Ukraine. Link is in the show notes. Hashtag Stand with Ukraine. Welcome back to Consolidate That. Ivan, I am very excited about our guest that we have this week. I actually have been uh, talking him up to other people since he got booked to, to be on the show with us. So I'm really excited for people to be able to hear the recording, but I'll, I'll go ahead and hand it to you and let you introduce our guest. You pre-sold the tickets. Uh, <laughs> I pre-sold them. We've got we've got four million pre-downloads on this episode already. So, excellent. Well, well, I couldn't be excited more. I think this is this is probably my the most exciting episode we've ever done. So we have a guest that uh, that I've been thrilled to meet through a new network of people uh, that I just discovered, as well as I wanted to meet in person, and we're doing it today. So I'm happy to introduce Corey Rosen. Um, uh, Corey is the founder of National Center of Employee Ownership, NCEO. Over the years, he has written, edited, or contributed to dozens of books, articles, and research papers on employee ownership. He has been called the leading expert on employee ownership in the world. He has been interviewed widely by major media and spoken around the world. Corey received his PhD in political sciences from the university uh, from Cornell University in 1973, after which he taught politics at Ripon College in Wisconsin before being named an American Political Science Association Congress Congressional Fellow in 1975. He worked on Capitol Hill for five years. He helped uh, to initiate and draft legislation on ESOP and employee ownership in 1981. He formed NCEO. He also is the author of 1042, which is an exciting business aspect of employee ownership. And I'm thrilled to have you here. Corey, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, I learned about Galaxy Vets through a news feed that we get that sends us anything about employee ownership. And I clicked on this and I saw what you were doing. And I thought, wow, this is absolutely amazing. Is, is this too good to be true? Is this really something someone is doing? And then fortunately we connected over LinkedIn and then in other ways later and, and found, yeah, it really is. And in fact, it went beyond what, what I even originally thought. And curiously, just probably a week before, I'd been listening to a local uh, public radio station, uh, which was doing a program on the difficulties of being a veterinarian and the stress and the suicides and the, the difficulty in the business model and uh, has so many more pets and so many more demands. And I, I was really taken aback and, and shocked and saddened by that. And then to see what Galaxy is proposing to do to try to deal with this, it was just, wow, I thought this is really exciting. So I'm, I'm delighted to be here. 
Corey, thank you for that. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about the origin of this? Because the uh, the employee ownership is a big topic for this podcast from two perspectives. I want to discuss it from the cultural aspect in the company and then also from business perspective. We're going to dive a little bit into 1042 because it's a complex topic. We're not going to uh, kind of scrape all the layers on it, but just touch. But from the origin, just where in, I, I was born in Ukraine and I actually was born during Soviet Union, uh, which is something that kind of did work <laughs> so yeah uh, and which i discovered when i was uh, i think 10 and then this is a very social approach in north america to ownership of the companies and the esop itself is an interesting structure that allows that existence of the employee ownership within the construct of capitalism and sort of su- kind of suff- sufficing both so can you tell us just in general in the US uh, where this concept came from and how did companies start sharing their wealth with employees without hurting the investors? Right. So back in the 1950s, a San Francisco a lawyer and investment banker named Louis Kelso was thinking about the economy and he said, you know, that the problem is that as we go forward in the next generation or two, that income is going to stagnate while returns to wealth are going to soar. And in the 50s, nobody thought that was going to happen. But of course, he was right. That's exactly what did happen. As we know now, well, real median income has has stagnated or dropped over the last several decades, while returns to wealth have soared. So there's an increasing concentration of wealth a tremendous wealth insecurity in the country where half the population say, says they couldn't lay their hands on $400. And all that has fueled a tremendous amount of dissatisfaction, distrust, cynicism amongst people saying, well, the system doesn't work. So Kelso said, well, the answer obviously is that we need ordinary working people to be able to be owners. And the problem is they don't have enough income to buy into ownership. So how can we fix that problem? And he came up with this idea of ESOPs. And the core concept of ESOPs is really pretty simple. It is that if somebody else wanted to come buy your business, what they're gonna do typically is use someone else's money or borrowed money from a bank, buy your business and pay it back out of the future profits that your business will make for them. Otherwise, why would they buy you, right? What's the point if they didn't think that your future profits could pay for the cost of buying your company? Just like people buy a house with a mortgage, same idea. So Kelso said the problem is that employees don't have access to that credit to buy their own company, even though Once they run it, they may run it better and with more enthusiasm and the company will do well. So the solution to this problem is to give some sort of structure and incentives for people who currently own these businesses to use this employee stock ownership plan as a way to transfer ownership. So what happens is the company sets up a trust. The trust is able to borrow money to buy shares to buy the stock from the owners who want to sell. The company then repays that loan through the trust 
out of the profits that those employees help create. So the owner gets to sell the company at a fair market value. The employees become owners. The company gets a tax deduction for all the money that it puts into the ESOP. And as of 1984, the seller could take the gains from the sale to this ESOP, reinvest them in stocks and bonds of other companies, and defer tax until those reinvestments were sold. Or if they go into your state, there's never any tax. So what Congress was doing is providing added incentives to do this that made this a more tax attractive way to sell your business than any other conceivable way. And what's interesting about this is this is not a Democrat idea, a Republican idea. There have been 17 separate pieces of legislation to encourage ESOPs, and none of them have had opposition. It supported, you know, Ronald Reagan loved employee ownership, Ted Kennedy supported employee ownership. It, it is a totally not partisan issue. And uh, boy, that's hard to find these days. So it's been politically successful and the data show it's been enormously successful economically. And we can talk about that later if you like. From the cultural standpoint, Nothing's required when you share ownership with employees this way. There's no law that says you have to do one thing or another. But what ESOP companies have learned from the research that we and others have done is that there is a certain set of practices that makes this work better. And so the successful ESOP companies tend to share a lot of information with their employees about how the business is doing, teach them how business works, and then set up structured opportunities for employees to talk about the business and contribute ideas about how to do things better. You know, how can we serve the customer better? How can we create a more efficient process for dealing with this problem or that problem? How can we source supplies better? Whatever that a lot of people in any organization typically have these ideas, but don't have any opportunity to do anything about them. So if you combine that with the tax benefits of employee ownership, you get a very effective company that really uh, not only outcompetes its competitors, but the owners who sell to ESOP feel good about it. They feel like, you know, I, I did the right, I, I did okay financially, don't get me wrong, but I feel really good about what I did. You know, I made lives better. I found those kind of the interesting thing when Ivan and, and our executive team at Galaxy Vets just started discussing the ESOP as, you know, I think we approached it first as a way to be able to award equity to the people that were working within the business because we started Galaxy Vets with an ESOP at the core of it. And it felt like the right thing to do. And the more and more we continued to learn about it, it did have that additional piece where we went, oh, wow. It, it does benefit financially as well. You know, it's, we, we keep finding that through building this business and through building other businesses that when we do what is the right thing for the greater good of the whole group, you know, people like yourselves have obviously thought about these things already and written in legislation or tax code or other things across the industry that make it so that it doesn't go to the detriment of the business. It can actually help grow the business, help fund additional income, additional revenue sources, additional uh, employee retention. So it's been really cool to see all of that coming together. Yeah. And 
this isn't just an impression. That there are very comprehensive studies that show that companies that are employee-owned grow about two and a half percent per year faster than you would have expected if they weren't, and they grow about six to eight percent per year faster if they combine the ESOP with this high involvement culture. The, the simplest way to describe it is it's a culture that generates more ideas from more people about more things. That's what makes companies really successful. The employees end up with about three times the total retirement assets. And I think especially critical for industries like the vet industry, turnover in ESOP companies is dramatically lower than it is in non-ESOP companies, both because empl employees, just the way these plans work, the longer you stay, the more ownership you get. So there's a real incentive to stick around. And secondly, the cultures are better. People like coming to work better. So you reduce turnover uh, at least by half. And boy, that's important, especially these days. So Corey, I have to tell you, you know, the, the story, how we came to this. So essentially in this market, we were a consulting company. We were consulting consolidators, how to uh, build consolidation. And my main thesis, due to what you've learned about the burnout and everything else, I'm, I was sort of a victim of that burnout that you heard about and almost lost, lost my life through experience, actually six years into my practice. And and I wanted to build a company that takes care of people first for the reasons that we, you know, that, that, that the veterinarians are burning out, they're leaving the profession, everything that's happening, the stress of work. But then I realized that with such a high turnover right now and veterinarians wanting to leave the profession because of the burnout, mm -hmm. it's a significant business impact. So we said, let's build our own group in which we will focus just on that because there's a direct financial impact on losing people. But we were sort of blind and looking for an instrument. How do we attract more people? So we just hypothetically said, what if we give ownership to everybody? Is it even possible? So it was just an idea. And then we said, would we hear anything from the market? Would we hear that people want to work with us more? So just statistics, 60% of ads posted by corporate are left unopened. It takes 10 months to hire one veterinarian by a clinic wow. and it's twenty-five dollars to $100,000 in recruiting fees. People are paying off student loans, buying cars, giving down payments on the houses to students to graduate and go to work for them today. So when we started, since we started, as of today, we had, since October, 1,245 job applications. People heard about this and said, we want to join in this market. Isn't that insane? Wow. So we looked at that, we said, there is something here. And then we started to look for an instrument. How do we grant equity? Because our employees, technicians, receptionists, they're not in the bracket where they would be able to buy equity. So our legal firm, Kuda Kroc, which I love, they suggested, say, why don't you try ESOP? This is a way of giving equity without, um, without having them to pay for it. So we loved the model and we just wanted to give equity to our employees, uh, which was just, that's, that's it. That's where we ended. And then after that, we're, we're finding out that there's also this mechanism where the seller can defer capital gain taxes, which is exactly what you wrote, the 1042. So it was, I keep calling it a finished basement in the house that we bought without knowing that it's there. And, uh, and we're right now, the most benefit will be in the, um, in the companies that are in the higher state bracket. So California, New York, New Jersey, but, but the benefit is there. So 
I want to add another thing in management that you will probably be interested in hearing. What I've learned through business education and through many companies that I've seen is that if you don't have engagement from the front lines, then the company is not acting as a whole. You have to have the purpose of the company first, so then you unite people around the culture, and then you need to manage it bottom up. And I've seen this through lean um, management in a healthcare mm -hmm. system. So they use lean in healthcare. And the primary theme there, in, and one of the principles, is taking care of people that do the work. So the executive management is doing the huddles and they do the gamba, which is they walk the floor with the people. So I learned it from there and I wanted to apply it to to veterinary medicine and in Galaxy, one of the main instruments to facilitate that communication bottom up, we've built an idea portal where essentially all the idea is to improve the business in a continuous improvement fashion like Kaizen or Lean is then collected. We have, a, we have a software product that collects ideas from everybody in the company and they're sorted out through the strategy filter. And then those that are winning, people can actually from any corner of the company implement that through a unique internal um, a process that helps innovate whatever you want to do, improve the workflow in the front desk, you want to improve the process of how we book appointments, anything and anybody in the company can give an idea and put it to life. Without knowing what you just said about the dramatic increase in, in employee satisfaction and increase in company value, we just wanted to do this because it felt right. So now that you're saying this, it's just incredible to hear that we were doing all those things. We felt like we were inventing something. It sounds like it's been invented as usually best things are, <laughs> but it's so great to hear that this is a perfect match of what you've done so much research on. And then the uh, the culture that we're building is, is, is actually as close to what you found in your research. So anyway, sorry for the long story, but that's yeah. the reality where we're at. Yeah, I think that's great. One, one of the lessons that I always talk to people about, about creating a high involvement culture is companies tend to start with, well, we've got an open door policy and we really encourage our employees to walk through that open door and share their ideas. Well, I've been doing this for decades and I often ask people in the audience, how many of you have a closed door policy? How many have ever heard of a company with a closed door policy? To say you have an open door policy is to say you're a company. And the problem is people don't walk through the open door. You don't get the kind of involvement that you're talking about by encouraging it or allowing it. You get it by structuring it. You have to create a system. And when what that system is is going to differ from one company to another. You know, what might be a great system for a manufacturing company where people can take 20 minutes off to, to sit down in a huddle uh, once a day or once a week or whatever and go over workflow issues may not work in a vet practice or where you've got a bunch of remote workers, right? So every, every company has to adapt a structure that's useful for the way that it works. But what's critical is you get a structure. And once you try that structure, you may find it's not working very well, but it gives you a starting point to say, okay, why isn't it working? How can we fix it? So what other instruments that you, you've heard of kind of implementing this? I love what you're saying because, you know, we have this other, we have a lot of innovative policies in, in, in the company. For example, we have unlimited vacation. You can take as much as you want vacation, it's all paid. 
but there needs to be a structure around it. And when people hear that, there's been many studies that people actually take less vacation and that's not our intent. So we have to push them to take the vacation. And we post every time the, the, you know, the executives and VPs are taking vacations, they have to post and articulate and show we are taking vacations because you can't give an example of workaholic and say, but you can take a vacation. People are not going to do it. So there needs to be a structure around it. So what are structures and, and kind of, you know, little uh, helpful tools that you can advise that people can do to implement this structure? Well, what I always suggest first is that a company set up an ideas team. So an ideas team would be, depending on how big your company is, but let's say you've got 50 employees. And so the ideas team might have uh, three or four people on it who come from across the company, often they're volunteers, and their charge is to create a system for generating ideas. The reason this is so important is that they're going to be closer to people about what might work and what might not work and to get their feedback as you go through the process. So the ideas team, we've seen all sorts of, of ways to approach this. A very simple approach, for instance, is for anybody to be able to say, here's a problem. And, and this is a really critical insight I think I've learned from other companies is it's more important to get employees to identify problems than solutions. If you know the right problems, the solutions will appear. If you don't know what the problems are, you're in big trouble. So, you know, sometimes you hear, well, if you don't know the solution, don't bother me. It's like saying, well, the gas is leaking, don't tell me. But I don't know how to turn it off. Well, <laughs> you need to know anyway. Somebody else will be able to figure that out. So in this simple system, maybe there's a card or there's a place on the computer, or maybe there's a a five-minute meeting once a week with everybody just stands up at a meeting and people can say, here's a problem I encountered last week that I don't think we have a solution to. If they have an idea, great, but maybe not. The ideas team now takes those problems and it says, how do we deal with this? Should we create an ad hoc committee? That's kind of the default option. An ad hoc committee of people who might know about this and anybody else who wants to be on it the ad hoc committee will meet until it comes up with a recommendation. So that's a really simple process, and I think it works really well for smaller companies. Uh, other processes we see are where the company has a regular meeting with them, where everybody meets once a week or some other period of time, and subgroups meet on a regular basis. And these are usually in functional areas, but they might be uh, cross-functional like customer service. And their purpose is simply to sit down, talk about issues, come up with solutions and make recommendations. So those are the two most common ways you see this approach. One of the most interesting things I see some of our members doing is high involvement strategic planning. And this means that once a quarter, once every four months, once a year, whatever your cycle is, that the group, everybody in the group is going to have half a day, a day or whatever, when they're going to go through a guided conversation about what should we be doing strategically in the next year? What are the key problems? What are our key opportunities? And the entire team is involved in this. 
And the goal is to identify a few critical priorities. Uh, and that can work tremendously well. It gets a lot of buy-in. Corey, it's it's almost like, you know, <laughs> I, I can't even, I can't describe how much I'm excited. So on that strategic meeting, so we have very specific strategic planning that was sort of a combination. I don't know if you're familiar with traction. Uh, so traction yeah. by Gina Wickman. So we have cadences and cascading level 10 meetings. So we have those places, but then quarterly planning is to my taste is not very well captured in that methodology. And we brought something from the framework that is called safe. So it's a scaled agile framework from the IT world. A couple of big companies implemented that and it's a multi-layer management system, but they have a very specific um, PI planning. It's a, it's a increment uh, planning. Increment is 90 days. So it's a quarterly planning. So the one thing that most quarterly planning meetings don't do it's usually a top-down initiative that says, we're going to do these things. And then you bring it to your teams and you say, hey, you're going to do this. And it's a top-down. So we, right. we wanted to A, reverse that. And B, there's no dependency allocation. So I worked in a large company for a short period of time, which was seven and a half thousand people. The planning goes only silo to silo to silo. And then once you come up with your plans and you dive into the quarter, and if you go to another uh, division and say, hey, I have this plan, which involves you, they say, this is out of our plan. We didn't plan for it. There's no collaboration between the silos. So the way we design it, our quarterly planning meeting is all hands-on. So we have 65 people. Everybody's present. We're doing it live and on Zoom. And basically, there is a tremendous preparation prior to that. We suggest the direction. So they sort of like a strategic themes. And then each team takes it to their team. So marketing, M&A, operations, they take the themes into their department and together they decide how they're going to solve towards these problems and then they're coming to the quarterly planning meeting with all the plans designed so we usually have north of 200 little milestones that then we conduct within three hours 10 minute long 50 to 60 meetings all together and all we do in these micro meetings is we connecting and saying hey ryan I'm in operations, but I need you in business development for this particular project in March. And they connected the dots. And then these micro meetings, they're already planned. Teams know what they're doing. They're just connecting the dependencies. But our each quarterly planning every three months is all hands-on, the entire company all together. So it's just, again, another sort of interesting thing that we're doing already, which kind of underlines what you just suggested. It really does. And that's very much like I what I've just described as this high involvement strategic planning process. Everybody's going to be a little bit different in how they do it, but the key thing is you try as much as possible to make it bottom up. And the sort of mantra is that people support what they create. Exactly. Yeah. I want to take a little turn into then. So, so this is amazing. All the, the things that you're describing all lean towards that. If the organization is owned by employees, it's more successful, it's growing faster, there's more buy and less turnover. That's exactly what we need in the industry. But what we also found out because we're growing through MA, we're buying existing businesses, we found this magic 1042. And it's a complex issue that, um, you know, when I discovered it, it took me three, four, five meetings to understand. But for the listeners, can you explain, because you kind of went there already, but simply what does it mean if a seller of the hospital, in our example, is in high tax bracket state and selling to a company like ours with ESO, what are the benefits to that seller? Yeah. Well, even if you're not in a high tax bracket state, you still have federal capital gains taxes to pay. So you've got at least 20% and usually more like 25 and 
here in California and New York, it might be 33% in taxes that you have to pay. So if you sell to anybody else, you're going to pay capital gains taxes. And you're going to pay capital gains taxes based on the difference between your tax basis in your ownership and what you sell for. So it can be a lot of money. If you sell to an ESOP, you can take whatever you've made. Let's say you make $3 million on the sale of the company. And if you're in California, you'll end up with about $2 million. If you sell to an ESOP, you still have $3 million. You can then reinvest it in stocks and bonds of U.S. operating companies. So there's some limitations and you can't invest in a foreign company, for instance, or a mutual fund, but it leaves you thousands of things that you can invest in. And so you've got your $3 million, pay no tax. Let's say that a few years later, you want to sell $500,000 uh, of that $3 million. And that $500,000 is now worth $600,000. And your basis is zero. So you would pay tax on the $600,000. You'd pay the state and federal capital gains taxes. But in the meantime, you would have had all that $500,000 that you would have paid taxes on before to continue to grow. So if, if you do the math on this, you typically, in a, say, a state where the combined taxes are 25%, if you reinvest at historic conservative rates of return, in about seven years, the deferral will double your money over what it would have been otherwise. Now, if any of that money goes into your estate, then there's never any tax on it. Or say that you have a charitable interest that you'd like to put some of that money in. You want to take a million dollars of the three million and contribute it to charity. Well, if you sold to someone else, you wouldn't have a million. You'd have $667,000. You can contribute that to charity. With an ESOP, you have a million dollars to contribute to charity. You could contribute that to a charitable remainder trust and get the income on a million dollars until you die. So. It's a really significant tax benefit, and you can't get it any other way. The only way you can do this is through an ESOP. So, you know, we, we had a couple of conversations recently with the sellers in California, significant transactions north of $10 million. And they were just a little shy, and they're like, nobody's doing that for one. And they, they say, this just sounds too good to be truth. And they're worried that the market will collapse and then these notes that you will reinvest into are going to expire and, and all kinds of stuff that they're worried about, which I think is very similar to what you would worry about in any given day right. uh, of the market. So for those sellers, and, and, and the more I learn about ESOP, I actually don't see a single reason not to do it. Because so, so I'm just going to give you an example. So we have a seller right now that wants to sell to us and they say, I just, I just, I'm not comfortable with this. I'm going to do it the other way around. To me right now, I understand that that person is missing out a huge opportunity. Is there any reason to suggest to that person to say, you know what, this is a good decision not to do it? Or what are the, what are the, you know, what are the things that we don't know about where you should yeah. watch for to do it? Like, is there any reason not to do it? Well, from the tax standpoint, if you're able to defer taxes versus not deferring taxes, it's there isn't any reason not to do that. I mean, yes, if you don't defer the taxes and you invest in stocks and bonds and they don't do very well, um, you're gonna you're gonna lose money. 
if you defer the taxes and your investments don't do very well, you'll lose money, but you started with more to begin with, so you end up with more to end up with. So the only reasons might be number one, you really don't want to invest in stocks and bonds. You want to invest in, I don't know, real estate, for instance, or you want to invest in a mutual fund. That used to be more of an issue. You can kind of create your own mutual fund now because trading costs are close to zero. So from an investment standpoint, it's kind of a no-brainer. The issue that comes up more often is, well, if we sell to an ESOP and we do it internally, so we're not selling to another buyer, then the ESOP pays what a financial buyer would pay. And if there's some other consolidator who's going to come in and give me a synergistic price, they might pay more than the ESOP could pay. Now, if you're selling to Galaxy Vets, this is less of an issue because Galaxy Vets is going to pay a market price, presumably, for whatever your company is worth. So the chances that you can find some other buyer who's going to pay more are not that, not that great. And they're not going to give you those same tax advantages. And, and frankly, the thing that we hear mostly from people who sell to an ESOP is, you know, the biggest issue for me is legacy. I want to get a fair price. I've done well. I've got a significant amount of money. And maybe I could get a little more after taxes if I sell to somebody else. Maybe not. But I feel a lot better about the idea of the employees taking over my business and not somebody else. And especially if that somebody else is private equity. Because we know what private equity does when they come in and buy medical practices, which they are doing, as you know, a lot. Yep. Uh, those private equity firms want to flip your company in three to seven years. And the best way they can make money doing that is to reduce costs. And you know what that's going to mean for your people. And in the vet industry, that reducing costs as you, as we started out this conversation, that reduc reduction in costs means more stress and probably more tragedy. And then less people involvement because people are not in, don't own the business. So now they know right. that they were working hard. Now they have to work harder for someone else that they don't potentially like, respect, or fit with their core values because they were hired by this person that just in their mind betrayed them and sold them. So this is, you know, there is, uh, I, I really don't, I really don't see why one would not do it, but um, the, the final argument that we hear, and again, I'm very new to this, but I'm very excited to kind of spread the word and articulate it well to people. But the final word is, it's just too good to be truth. So this combination of these things, employees yeah. own the business, you're growing then after that fast, your legacy is preserved, you got more money in the bank, and it's more secure. Is there anything else why this is too good to be truth and it's not true? <laughs> No, I mean, it, <laughs> Con Congress created this to be the most tax advantaged way to sell a business. So, you know, too good to be true. Congress explicitly created this structure for that reason, to make it better than other ways to do it. There is absolutely no threat politically to this. 
because there is no opposition to it from either side, literally none. In fact, right now, there's a whole bunch of bills at the state and federal level to encourage more employee ownership that have bipartisan support, and we're quite optimistic about them. So from a financial standpoint, the, the one area where people might say, oh, it's too good to be true, is if you're trying to do this on your own. So you're a vet practice and you said, we're going to set up, and there are a couple of these, we're going to set up an ESOP for our practice, and that's going to be how we're going to do the transition. For a lot of very technical issues we don't need to go into here, that may be very difficult to do on your own, both expensive and there's some complexities involved in legal structure. So that's why I haven't seen very much of this in the vet industry. And if you're, particularly if you're a smaller practice, uh, the cost can just overwhelm what the value is. But if you're selling to a consolidator like Galaxy that's going to do this for you, that's not your problem anymore. And the, you know, the Galaxy is able to absorb these legal costs because of its size in a way that some uh, small practice really wouldn't find practical. Uh, plus, there's a lot of just of time that needs to be taken if you're doing it on your own that may be difficult for a lot of practices to do. So here, somebody else is dealing with that for you. And I want to ask this last question before we get to our usual couple of questions at the end. Um, but we hear from investors. So that's another side of it, because a lot of investors that we talk to, they're a little shy of this because they're just not familiar. And then there is this this world of investors that do know this and understand the whole value of this. And the question that I get from investors um, immediately is, well, why not everybody is doing this? So is there really an answer why this is not a, because this is such an amazing strategy. So why would not everybody utilize this for their go and emanate tactic yeah. or strategy, if you will? Well, let's say you're a private equity firm. And I mean, this is, actually happening right now. I know people in the private equity world quite well who've looked at ESOPs and said, well, we just don't want to use that. And they don't want to use it because for the private equity firm, yeah, maybe the ESOP company would be more successful, but the ownership is more distributed and they want all the ownership, number one, or most of it. And they're going to flip the company in three to seven years. So all the costs and culture and so on, it takes a while to establish that. And it's it just not worth it for that short a time frame. So private equity and other sorts of investors basically are saying, look, we would rather just capture all the value ourselves. And this ESOP thing looks a little too iffy to us. But there are private and equity investors who started to look at this more carefully and say, wait a minute, if we invest in these companies and they perform better, and there is a mechanism in place to buy us out over time at a fair market value, this is not a bad deal compared to, to what we the risks that we might take buying it all on our own. So 
I think a lot of investors just really don't understand how it works. And they're much more comfortable with the traditional model that they do see how it works. We're also seeing, though, now a number of social investment funds where they don't they want to invest in business deals like this, but they want to invest in business deals that feel good to them. And there's an increasing amount of capital in those funds. So I think there are opportunities here for investors if they really understood how this works. But the vast majority don't. Well, Corey, I think that might tee up a perfect place for people to learn more about these kind of things. So is there a book that you could recommend or a TED Talk or a podcast series that you yeah. might recommend for people to listen to? So if you go to our website, which is nceo.org, our initials for National Center for Employee Ownership, you'll see some articles explaining how this works. Uh, we have a book called Selling to an ESOP, and that's kind of the step-by-step -step guide to how to do this. People who are interested can contact me, contact the organization, and I can help point them to the specific things that they might need. We're also a membership organization. So if you join, you can contact us anytime with any kind of questions about any issue related to employee ownership. We also do conferences and workshops and webinars. So if you go to the website, you'll see a lot of material that helps walk you through how to do this. That would be great. I I know this has been very, very informative for us and very interesting because I think it's something that is different and it felt so new and revolutionary. And then as I, we started diving into the tax code, we went, well, this has been around and we need to explore more of this. So really happy that we could you know, learn some more from you and, and hopefully share some interesting tips with our listeners as well. And if people want to get a sense of, is this a real thing? A good way to do that is to go to the Employee Ownership 100, just Google it, and you'll see the largest 100 employee-owned companies in the country, and you'll recognize a lot of them. So this is not some oddball thing, you know, companies like Publix and Black and & Beach and all sorts of other really big companies are owned by their employees and doing quite well. Wow. Corey, this has been amazing. Uh, very informative. I'm so happy to meet you in person. And uh, thank you. Thank you for finding the time. Uh, we're definitely going to learn more. I'm already a member of NCO, and I hope that uh, we'll find a place for uh, and, and the ways to engage the entire company actually into this and immerse them into the culture of ownership. And, uh, and I hope for more conversations with you down the road. Great. I really appreciate this. And I'm tremendously impressed with what you're doing. So good luck with it. Thank you, Corey. Thanks, Corey. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at galaxyvets.com.